Hi, good afternoon, everyone. Good afternoon, Hope Church. I like to see who's here. The lights prevent me from seeing everyone's face, but as you know, Pastor Q, his wife Joy, and um, Elder Anne, they've been away for, I think, two and a half weeks, almost three weeks. They are coming back tonight. Um, They will arrive, I believe, around midnight, coming back from Korea. They've had an amazing spirit-filled, blessed time in South Korea, the revival, the baptisms. If you're friends with Pastor Q on Facebook, then um, you're following him. Mostly, he, you know, he posts pictures of food, but um, there are some good pictures of Holy Spirit moving and, you know, <laughs> other things, but mainly food. Um, if you're not friends with him, he would love for you to be uh, friends with him. I know that. He's always trying to get his uh, friend numbers up. So they're coming back later tonight around midnight. And then um, if you saw in the worship bulletin, I'm leaving. Um, It's like tag team. He's coming in at midnight, and I'm leaving at around 5 in the morning, 5, 6 a.m. I'm going to a church conference, a national church conference. It's going to be in Loveland, Colorado. It's about 45 minutes north of Denver, Colorado. And I heard and I saw pictures. Two weeks ago, it was snowing there already snowing in Denver. So can you just pray for safe travels? I have to rent a car and drive from the Denver airport an hour north to get to uh, Loveland. So just pray for safe travels. Would appreciate that. All right. So as you know, Pastor Q, before he left, um, began a series. Um, He only was able to preach one one, uh, session of it, and it was about first things. I'm not going along with that, but today let me begin by asking... I want to begin with two questions. First, what do you think is the highest honor that you could receive? And secondly, what is the finest gift that you could give to another person? Think about those two things. What's the highest honor that you could receive? And also, what is the finest gift that you could give to another person? I'm sure that we can all come up with a variety of answers to these two questions. A lot of things that could be like honor related to work, your profession, um, maybe status uh, socially. You know, there's just lots of answers you can give. But I believe that um, there's one quite simple answer that could apply to all of these. And that is, I believe that the highest honor that we can receive from someone else is the friendship of that other person. I also believe that the finest gift that we can give to another person is our friendship. These days, I think friendship is so uh, undervalued. But again, Pastor Q's um, series is going to be about first things, and he talked about parenting. I think friendship is up there. First things, no one can survive without relationships, without friendships. Yes, you know, um, there's the uh, romantic love, you know, people get married, et cetera, you know, between man and woman and all this, but friendship, just the, just the relationship of friendship is so important. And I think that uh, in today's, with just everything that's happening with social media and things like that, we are forgetting that. So today's message is about the gift of friendship, that truly it is a gift from God. We're going to be jumping at various uh, Bible passages but um, at the core of it will be John 15. Now, many sociologists in America, they say that the biggest social problem today is what? What do you think? 
Yes, loneliness. Thank you, Ms. Florence. Loneliness is the greatest problem. Loneliness. We just don't know how to even cultivate friendship, how to even start a new friendship. So many of us now, you know, we're so isolated. Loneliness, and again, with computers and smartphones and social media, it connects us so much more. I'm connected to my high school friends. I know Hoon is connected to uh, people. He talks now through Kakao and Facebook and other things to people he went to kindergarten with in Korea. Can you believe that? He talks to people from kindergarten. You know, he's 50. I'm just going to put him out there. And he still talks to people he knew in kindergarten. And it's possible, made possible, because of technology, because of all these apps, because of um, you know, the um, internet and things like that. And yet, we're connecting to more people. We are able to um, keep in touch and keep up with the lives of so many more people. And yet, we are very, very lonely. It's such a common scene, right? You guys go, people talk about it all the time. You go to a restaurant and the family sits there, mom, dad, kids, and they pull out their phones, or they're not even talking. Well, have you also seen the phenomenon where um, you go to see where the teenagers are, the teenagers are hanging out? Same thing. You would think that you know, a bunch of teenage girls would be cha 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 No, they'll go for ice cream or froyo or something like that, and they'll be sitting there with their um, smartphones as well, not talking and chit-chatting and chattering. They're doing this. In fact, um, this is me. I play with my friends in Seattle. I play uh, words with friends. If you know, it's like a Scrabble game. You know, they make a move, and then it's my turn. I make a move. So I play this with my friend in Seattle. When I was in Seattle, what happened was I finally got to see him. I hadn't seen him in years, and we just play uh, you know, this game. But when I was with him, we were in the same house. We sat on the sofa next to each other playing. We weren't even talking to one another, but he made a move and he was like, it's your turn. And then I made a move and that's what we were doing. I mean, that's how bad it is. Even now, when we're physically together, we're just playing this game over our smartphones. And again, like I said, it's just getting worse. We live among many people. We even interact with people, but we live as strangers. You know, I'm really blessed because I moved into a brand new community. When you move into a... Um, you know, place a new house, new apartment, whatever, and people are already living there, it's kind of hard. You know, and who these days will knock on all their neighbors' doors and say, hi, I just moved in next door. No one does that. I mean, way back when, people used to bring a home-baked pie or borrow some sugar from your neighbor or something, and they would, you know, get to know their neighbors and say, or the nosy neighbor would come knock on your door and say, I see the moving truck out front. Welcome to the neighborhood. No one does that anymore, right? But again, I'm blessed because I moved into a brand new community that was built from scratch. And so everybody is new. And they had to create a HOA. We had to go to all the uh, initial meetings. And so because of that, it forced us where all the neighbors know each other. Isn't that pretty cool? Because we're all new and we're all getting to know, oh, do you have issues with nail pops? Oh, did you have issue with the warranty on this builder? But you know, we're all talking. But, you know, barring that, when you move into some place different that's already established, you're not going to be able to get to know everyone and talk to people. So we're living in a very lonely time, and we live as strangers, even next door to people. We forget that friends are our richest resource. Friends are our richest and most valuable resource. What would life be like without friends? Socrates, as you know, the great philosopher, 
Socrates is quoted as saying, all people have their different objects of ambition. You know, this, he's speaking from his time, which is horses, dogs, money, honor, as the case may be. But for my part, I would rather have a good friend than all these put together. This was a smart and wise uh, man, philosopher. So too often, the value and importance of having good friends is really underestimated, is really um, neglected. And in just the hustle and bustle, everybody's busy. Everyone is just so busy trying to get by that we're not devoting enough time to friendship. You know, I was recently invited to Princeton um, Theological Seminary up in New Jersey to speak at an event. And I went, and there was a, after I spoke, there was a Q&A time, and we took questions. It was a moderated discussion, and we took questions from, the, they're all seminary students at Princeton. And uh, one of the questions I received was, if knowing what you know now, what would you have done differently when you were in seminary? What would you have done differently um, now that you're older and wiser, Mimi? What would you have done differently while you were in grad school and seminary? And I said two things. One is I would have definitely paid much more attention to systematic theology. Um, if you guys know, systematic theology is more, it's very, like it says, systematic. It tells you all the different theologies, all the different the definitions. It's really, really uh, complex. But I, I slept a lot through those classes. It was really kind of boring. But I regret it now. I would have really, really, really paid much more attention. Um, and the second thing is this. I would have really invested more in my friendships during my time in grad school, during seminary. That's what I regret. Knowing what I know now, if I could do it again, I would have Definitely taken the time to really uh, not just invest, but, but you know, kind of the, the friendships to solidify and to um, put a lot of time and effort into, into the people then. Because what I realize is that now that I'm out, all the people that I went to seminary with, they're pastors and missionaries all over the world now. And just, um, just having that, that uh, community of like-minded people that we are, in fact, I just got a um, text message, the, is, what is it called, the National Evangelical Association. It's this huge organization, all evangelical, across all denominational lines, are in it, Baptists, you got Methodists, Presbyterians, everybody's part of this. It's called the National Evangelical Association. And one of my um, friends from seminary texted me this link saying, Guess who's just got elected to be the new president? And it's a friend of ours from seminary named Walter Kim. And they said it's a very, very first time ever in this really old uh, organization where a person of color, an Asian guy, has just been elected. He's Korean and he's married to a Chinese uh, woman. But yeah, and I was like, wow, I know him. I went to school with him. He's famous. He is the president-elect of this huge organization now of all, representing all evangelicals in the United States. And so that's what I regret is that I would have spent more time with just cultivating that friendship and knowing now that you know, I can see on Facebook or get a phone call, I see a lot of them are planting churches. They're posting, saying, hey, pray for me. Uh, my church is launching this Sunday. Or some of them are missionaries. Do you know Chaplain S.I. Saw why he's a missions partner? It's because I went to seminary with him. He's my friend. And when he's in the army, he realized that he has no prayer support because he doesn't have a home church. And yet every day he's doing the, the grueling task of ministering to, praying for all these men and women, these soldiers who have a lot of issues, emotional and getting deployed, they come back, family issues, and just 
all this stuff, and, and he reached out to me. He's like, hey, isn't your church called the house of prayer for everyone? So you guys must pray. And so he said to me, he goes, I don't need money, but can I be your missions partner? He says, the U.S. Army pays me well, so I don't need you to send me missions money, but can you pray for me? Can you put me down as a missions partner? And because of that connection, because he was a friend of mine from seminary, we're able to support him and pray for him and just be there for him. Tony Chung, you guys know Pastor Tony Chung, is another person that I met at seminary. Even though he grew up in Maryland, I never met him, I never really knew him, but it was only in seminary we find out, hey, we're both from Maryland and we know each other. So just friendship, the importance of it. Too often we do not, um, we underestimate it and we neglect the importance of it. You can tell a lot about a person by the friends that they keep. You can tell a lot about a person by who they surround themselves with and who they hang around because basically friends are a reflection of us, right? Think about it. It's those that you hang out with, those that you may uh, have things in common, they're a reflection of us. So I'd look, I would like to look at a few friendships that are mentioned in the Bible. Um, and the most famous one, there's a story of friendship the most famous one from the Old Testament, we all know, right? It's Jonathan and David. I love, love, love the story. I love their friendship. It's found in 1 Samuel. This is probably the most famous friendship in all of Scripture. And it's this uh, friendship between Jonathan and David. Jonathan is... Um, King Saul's son, and that means that he is the crown prince. He is the one that is going to be the heir to the throne because his father, King Saul, is the king. David is the anointed king. You know, the prophet Samuel anoints him and all that. And so he's the anointed future king that will eventually take over the throne from the house of Saul. So basically, he's the one who's going to be taking over, taking away Jonathan's birthright. Because Jonathan is the crown prince, but David's going to take that over, as you know, um, from biblical history. So how can these two be friends? How can these two become friends, let alone best friends? That we hold them up as an example of what friendship should be in the Bible. If you look at the outward appearance and the circumstances, you would think that they would be enemies. Because back then, everybody was they were even killing their own brothers and own sisters, their own fathers and their own children, you know, wrestling for the throne. Here are two, they're not even related, they're friends, and one is going to take the throne basically from the other, and yet they are best friends. This is just an incredible story. So let's look. You guys can open your Bibles to 1 Samuel. Chapter 18. Let's look at 1 Samuel 18, verse 1. Now, this is right after David kills Goliath. Again, we're all familiar with the story. David kills Goliath, and he kills him for King Saul. And this is what happens. Verse 1. After David had finished talking with Saul, Jonathan became one in spirit with David, and he loved him as himself. These two friends, they even make a covenant. They make this pact with one another. If you read verse 3, and Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as himself. And in verse 4, we see that Jonathan, continuing on, we see that Jonathan readily is giving up his own royal ambitions. Jonathan took off the robe he was wearing, and you imagine it's a royal robe. He takes off his own robe, and he gives it to David along with his tunic and even his sword, his bow, and his belt. Now, these are all things that um, 
that mark him as royalty. And here, all his royal ambitions, he's transferring it to David. All the symbols that would mark him as the crown prince, he willingly gives to his friend David. Again, the royal robe, the tunic, the sword, the bow, and the belt. Now, Jonathan's father, King Saul, he continues to lose favor. If you were familiar with this story, he continues to lose favor with God. He's headed downhill, right? Losing favor. While David continues to rise in favor, not only with God, but with the people of God. He becomes triumphant. He becomes victorious. He's winning battle after battle, which, of course, incurs Saul's wrath and jealousy. He's the king, and yet people are singing the praises of David and not of the sitting king. And so he becomes very, very jealous. Look what it says in verse 7. As the people dance, they're singing, Saul has slain his thousands, and David his tens of thousands. No one wants to hear that, you know, if you're the king, right? Saul was very angry. This refrain displeased him greatly, of course. They have credited David with tens of thousands, he thought, but me with only thousands. What more can he get but the kingdom? And from that time on, Saul kept a close eye on David. So King Saul makes a total of six attempts on David's life. Six times he tries to get rid of David. Six times he tries to kill David. It's all told in the uh, chapters 18 through 20, and you can read about it, but six attempts on his life. And through it all, what, what is Jonathan doing? Through it all, Jonathan is there. Jonathan is helping David um, to escape his father's wrath. Jonathan is always somehow there helping David to get away from his father's murderous rage. Let me, so uh, chapter 23, verses 15 through 18. While David was at Horash in the desert of Ziph, he learned that Saul had come out to take his life. So here's Saul trying to get him. And Saul's son Jonathan went to David at Horash and helped him find strength in God. Don't be afraid, he said. My father Saul will not lay a hand on you. You will be king over Israel, and I will be second to you. Even my father Saul knows this. The two of them made a covenant before the Lord. Then Jonathan went home, but David remained at Horash. We hear Jonathan's words of humility and love here. Just humility. He's like, don't worry. He goes, you will be king and I will be second. What crown prince says that? You will be king. My dad's trying to kill you, but you're going to be fine. Find your strength in God. I will be second to you, is what he's saying. You hear this humility. You hear this love coming across from Jonathan. He encourages his friend to look to God for strength. You know, look to God. And the whole while protecting him from his own father who wants to kill him. That rage is turned on him as well. Now, Saul, he's just, you know, he's angry. He sees, he understands that Jonathan is siding against him, his own father, trying to protect this guy who's trying to take the kingdom from them. So his rage even turns on his own son, Jonathan. If you look here in verse uh, 30 through 33, Saul's anger flared up at Jonathan, and he said to him, I love how they, you son of a perverse and rebellious woman. Why you got to bring mom into it? I don't understand, right? But he goes, you son of a perverse and rebellious woman. Don't I know that you have sided with the son of Jesse to your own shame and to the shame of the mother who bore you? I don't know why he's bringing up his mother. Um, and he says, as long as the son of Jesse lives on this earth, neither you nor your kingdom will be established. 
Now send someone to bring David to me, for he must die. Why should he be put to death? Jonathan is saying. What has he done? Jonathan asked his father. But Saul hurled his spear at Jonathan to kill him. Then Jonathan knew that his father intended to kill David. Now King Saul is basically saying, are you stupid or something? Do you, do you not get it? Do you not understand? Why are you protecting him? He is your rival. As long as he lives and the people are supporting him, as long as he lives, you will never be king. He is going to steal the throne, your inheritance. He's going to steal this from you. Don't you get it? Saul is so upset that he even hurls a spear at his own son. He's not in his own mind. So these two, Jonathan and David, no denying it, they have a very special bond. They have a very special friendship. Let me read um, verse 42. This is the last time that they see each other. This is the last time Jonathan and David see each other, and this is what it says. Jonathan said to David, Go in peace, for we have sworn friendship with each other in the name of the Lord, saying, The Lord is witness between you and me, and between your descendants and my descendants forever. Then David left, and Jonathan went back to the town. This is the last time they see each other. You notice how this friendship and this covenant it's not just between the two of them. He brings the descendants into it, right? It's not just between the two of them, but he says, Lord is witness between you and I, between our descendants and our descendants forever. It includes even future generations. And later in the story, King Saul and his three sons, including Jonathan, are killed in battle with the Philistines. So King Saul dies, his three sons die, Jonathan is dead. And David eventually does become king, but he never, ever forgets his friend Jonathan. Later in 2 Samuel chapter 9, verse 1, David asks, David asks, after you know, he's king and you know, Saul's line has been cut, he says, is there anyone still left from the house of Saul? Is there anyone still left to whom I can show kindness to for my friend Jonathan's sake? You know, this... King Saul tried to kill him six times. He did all kinds of crazy things, right? And he says, he remembers his friend. And he says, is there anyone left from the line and the house of Saul that I can show kindness to for the sake of my friend Jonathan? And there is. Again, it's all in the Bible. I'm sure you know the story. The son of Jonathan named Mephibosheth. Mephibosheth is crippled because after they find out that King Saul and his sons are dead, Mephibosheth's nurse picks him up. He's five years old, picks him up, and they're trying to flee now because, you know, the, the house of Saul is done. And as they're fleeing in her hurry, they fall. And then Mephibosheth gets injured and he becomes crippled for life. So he always, all the days of his life, needs someone to care for him and he cannot walk. And so what does David do? He finds out that Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, is alive, crippled, and he has Mephibosheth brought to him, brought to the king's table, and he honors him. He gives him a choice seat at the table with his other sons. He brings the boy to his personal, the, the king's uh, dining table as one of his own sons and is able to show that kind of kindness onto the line of Saul because of his friendship with David, Mephibosheth's father. And so this incredible friendship, it extends way beyond the grave, you know? I mean, Jonathan probably, you know, 
he sees, and if he knew, he would be so grateful to his friend David and the kindness that he's showing to his son, his crippled son, Mephibosheth. Friendship is a gift from God. As Christians, we live out our faith in the context of relationships. We live out our faith. You know that, that whole, um, what's that phrase, no man is an island? It's true. You cannot prove to me that you are a Christian. You cannot somehow show me that you are a Christian if you don't have any relationships. You can recite the entire Bible that you might have memorized. You know, a lot of the Jewish, uh, the Hebrew uh, boys back then, they would recite an incredible amount of the Torah, right? They would recite it. But you cannot prove to me and show me that you are a Christian if you don't have any relationships. It's in the daily giving and taking, the fighting, the struggles, the arguing, the ups and downs, and, you know, the annoyances of our relationships and our friends, the people we keep company with, that we see what you're made of, that we can see that you are a Christian. We as Christians live out our faith in the context of our relationships. Jonathan's friendship was essential to David's life. Physically, it saved him from death, right? But also more than that. This special relationship literally meant life or death for him. And for David, it saved his life more than once. The Bible says, where two or more are gathered in my name, there I will be in the midst of them. Where two or more are gathered in my name. We quote this verse all the time, there I will be in the midst of them. When two believers are friends, when two believers are friends and they're gathered together, that friendship has power. It has supernatural, it has spiritual power. I think, um, I don't know how old you guys are and if you would remember, do you remember the Wonder Twins? The, the um, Justice, the, was it Justice? League of Justice? Justice League, the Justice League, you know, um, with Superman and, and all of them. But anyway, there was these, um, it's a cartoon character Saturday morning, um, and there was these Wonder Twins, and they would, you know, hit each other. It's a guy and a girl, and they would say, Wonder Twin Powers, activate! And they would, you know, hit their, um, do you guys know what I'm talking about? Who here knows the Wonder Twins? Come on, people. All right. All right, so the Wonder Twins, and then they say, form of a, and then he turns into something, shape of a, and then she turns into something, and that's their superpower, right? But boom, the power, when you come and he's like, you know, when two or more are gathered in my name, but when those two are filled with the Holy Spirit, my Holy Spirit in me, Holy Spirit in you, bam, you know, and there it's just multiplied, and there is the supernatural strength, there is supernatural power when two or more are gathered. It can fight and overcome evil, just like the Wonder Twins. It can fight and overcome evil, just as Jonathan and David's friendship, it was able to overcome Saul's evilness. Think about it. It was because of that tight bond, because of that friendship that made them, um, you know, outlive Saul, and it made them, like, um, be able to strengthen one another and survive all that they went through, this supernatural friendship. It overcame King Saul's evil plans. Uh, it overcame all those things, and David was able to become king. That's why it's so important to choose our friends wisely, to really know who our friends are. When we talk about love, like I said in the beginning, mostly the first thing you think about love is a love between, you know, it's the romantic love. Eros love. We think about romantic eros love. While the philia love, philia like Philadelphia, brotherly love, it's often overlooked. 
philia is the friendship. It's the brotherly, sisterly love among friends. But it's just as important, just as important, if not more important. I really, really, really believe this. This is just an aside, but it's really, think about your closest friends and your friendships. When I first found out um, about my fertility issues and that I couldn't, um, I couldn't have children, you know, by myself, naturally, that it was going to take intervention, it was going to take reproductive technology for me to get pregnant, um, and that the only way that was going to happen was through in vitro and the whole harvesting, you know, eggs and um, um, all that stuff. Of course, I was devastated, I was crushed, and when I found that out, and I was talking to one of my friends on the phone, one of my friends here in Maryland, because I was still in Seattle um, at the time, and I'm crying, and I'm talking to my friend, and just kind of, I wasn't even really serious, but I was just in that place, in a very, very bad place. And I said to her, just you know, kind of off the cuff, and I was like, would you ever consider carrying my child? Like a surrogate, you hear that all the time. You know the TV show Friends, where Phoebe carries the, was it quadruplets or quintuplets of her brother? But um, so I was thinking, you know, I think I had just seen that episode, that's why. But I was like, I said to my friend, I was like, it's crazy, it's a huge ask. It is, you know, but I was in that place where I just kind of, you know, off, just off the cuff said, you know, I can't have children, I, I, you know, I'm this and this and that. Would you, and she already had children of her own, so, you know, she, she's not, like, she's married and she has children. And I said, would you ever consider being a surrogate and giving birth to my kids? And, you know, of course, there was this, there was, like, even, like, a, just only a split-second pause, and then she was like, yeah. She goes, I would do that for you. And then I was shocked. I was shocked. She didn't have to even think about it. She was like, yeah, I would do that for you. And then there was a pause, and then she goes, Oh, but I don't know how my husband or my mom would feel about that. <laughs> so, of course, reality hits, and you realize, okay, it's, it's, it's more than just the two of us making this pact or making decisions. She's got other kids. She's got a husband. She's got her mom. How's she going to explain? I'm pregnant, but this kid's not mine. And Anyway, but to me, that showed just the evidence and depth of the type of friends that I have, that they would even be willing to go to that level or to that length for me as a friend. We should not take our, our earthly friendships too lightly. They are God-given. They are God-blessed friendships. Now, I also want to quickly look at the New Testament. There's a passage in the New Testament found in Mark chapter 2. Mark chapter 2. And in this story in the New Testament, it is where we find uh, Jesus healing a paralytic. And it also involves friends. Jesus heals a paralytic. Now, Jesus, he's been traveling. He's traveling all over Galilee, and he's particularly been going to a lot of the synagogues and speaking. So he's got a following. He's become famous. People know of him. And he's healing people. He's driving out demons. And so people know of him, and people are following him. And he returns to Calpurnium to get some rest. Can you imagine? He's on the road all the time. So he returns to Calpurnium to rest a while. But when he gets home... He, the word gets out, Jesus is back, Jesus is in town, he's home, he's home. Word gets out, and everyone wants to see him. Everyone's coming over, everyone's clamoring to be, and to, to be with Jesus and to see him. So the whole town comes over to the house where Jesus is staying at. 
There's so many people inside the home. It's like standing room only. There's people outside the house trying to get in, surrounding the physical outside of the house. No one else can get near Jesus. And you guys know this story. And it's here in Mark chapter 2 that we read about this, in this story where four guys, four friends, they arrive carrying their paralytic friend. They bring him on a stretcher, and they're so determined to get their friend close to Jesus. And so in chapter 2, we read that they climbed up on the roof of the house where Jesus was. They actually cut a hole they dug, the Bible says they dug, 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 and they cut a hole, made a hole in the roof, and they lowered their friend on a stretcher down in front of Jesus, where Jesus stood. This story is mentioned in all three synoptic gospels. Here's a visual, you guys. Look up here. Here's a visual. You see those guys um, you know, up there lowering their paralytic friend on the stretcher where Jesus is standing. They cut the hole in the roof, and they lower him down. Here's another uh, rendering of of what's happening here. And like I said, this story is mentioned in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And in each account, the four men's names are not given. We don't know their names. And so these guys, they go pretty much unrecognized. They go pretty much unnoticed. It just says four guys or four men or four friends, right? We don't know who they are. If you look closely at this story in Mark chapter 2, again, you can find it in Matthew and Luke as well. If you look closely, you will see that in verse 5, it says, when Jesus saw their faith. If you guys are looking at your Bible. When Jesus saw their faith. So the the crippled man's healing was based on faith, but not his own faith. It was not based on his own faith. It was based on the faith of these four guys. It was based on the faith of these who cared enough that when they heard Jesus was back in town, that they carried their paralyzed friend to Jesus, determined to see their friend get healed. Because it says, again, and you can read in all various translations, when Jesus saw their faith, their, meaning the guys that brought this guy, not based on the paralyzed man's faith. They even did damage to this house that Jesus is staying in. How many of us would have the audacity, would have the guts, would have the nerve where Jesus is down there and we're up there hammering and, you know, making a hole, digging and stuff, you know, doing damage to the house. I don't know if it was Jesus's house really, but to get this, that's how desperate they were for their friend to get front row seats to the man Jesus, to himself. Now, this this is kind of a kind of a real life case for me too because I have a friend and her mother is not a believer. And a few years ago, um, she has um, health issues, particularly her kidney, and her, her mother is not a believer, and there was going to be a healing service in Fairfax, Virginia at this church. And the person who was coming is one of those really well-known, uh, famous pastors who have the gift of healing, and they were going to do this healing service. So um, she found out about it, and she said to us, to my circle of friends, she's like, I'm going to get my mother there. And her mother's not a believer, like I said. She says, I'm going to get my mother there. I'm going to take her. I'm going to make sure that she gets prayed for. I'm going to just go for it. I'm going to pursue it. I'm going to contend for healing for my mother. Will you stand with me? Of course we will. And so, again, it's just a coincidence, but it was the four of us. It 
just like this story, um, it was her and then the three of us who were friends with her. So we all drove to Fairfax, Virginia, middle of the week, in the evening, fighting traffic, and we got there. And so when the uh, pastor was calling out people to you know, pray for them and stuff like that, my friend took her mom up, and me and the three other friends, we walked up too, and we stood shoulder to shoulder behind the mom and with my friend. And based on our faith, we said, do it, Lord, based on our faith. We believe enough for her, enough for everybody else in this room. Do it. And we prayed for her and we stood with her. Those are the kind of friends that you wanted so much, you know. This person's victory is my victory, you know. I want it so badly for my friends. And my friends want it that badly, not just for me because I'm their friend, but also for, like we said, descendants or generations. They want it that badly for my mother. They're not friends with my mother. They don't know my mother, but they will stand with my mother. They will stand with my child. They will stand with my uncle or aunt or even my grandparents. These are the people of faith that you want to surround yourself with who are friends. So how about you? Are you such a friend to others? Are you this sort of friend to others? How willing are you to act in faith like these four for the sake of a friend? These friends played a very crucial role in the healing of this paralyzed man. And so look around you. Not literally, but look around you. Who do you surround yourself with? Who are your friends? Who are you always chatting with and hanging out with, going to the movies with, meeting up for dinner? Look around just your, your environment. Look around you. Who do you hang around with? Who are your closest friends? Are they people who live out their faith? Let me put it another way. Could you be blessed in some incredible way in some day, you don't know when, but could you be blessed in some incredible way someday because of your friend's faith? Because of your friend's faith? Some of you may have uh, mostly non-Christian friends, right? I'm not saying that we should only have Christian friends. I'm not saying that we should only surround ourselves with Christians. In fact, I encourage In fact, I'm telling you, I implore you to have non-Christian friends, okay? You must have non-Christian friends. Um, I don't like it when we're in our holy huddle and we only surround ourselves with the other holy, righteous people, right? You've got to have non-Christian friends. But if your closest friends, if your closest circle of friends are all non-Christians, you are going to struggle in life. You're going to have a hard time. I know a lot of people will say, my faith is so strong, I'm going to be a light to, in the dark places. You know, my best friend is a non-Christian. Yeah, I go to those places. I hang out with people who are not Christians. I do that on purpose. No one is that strong. No one, no one is that strong. You do, if that's, you know, even if that's, you feel that's your mission, that's your ministry, you cannot do it alone. You have still got to have that core um, group of people, uh, friends in the community that's going to be able to pray into you so that you could do that. Like my friend Chaplain Su, he's out there ministering to these young enlisted soldiers, right? And he realized he has no prayer support, right? He's strong, he's a man of God, he's a chaplain, ordained minister, captain in the army, all this stuff. And yet he's like, I need a core group that's going to pray for me, that's going to have my back. And that's what we need. And if that's your calling, if you are surrounding yourself purposely with non-Christians, that is awesome. But again, you are not that strong. 
you are going to need that group of friends. There's nothing like being able to share your burdens and your prayer requests with your closest friends. If you grew up having a non-Christian friend, or if you dated a non-Christian person, if you've ever been in a relationship with a non-Christian uh, person, you're so in love with that person, or this friend is your childhood best buddy, you grew up with that person, and they're not a Christian, you, you will know the pains of not being able to share the core of who you are not being able to share when, when you know, you have, you're going through a hard time and you, know, you can't say, pray with me or pray for me. You know, you're going to be able to, you will experience that, that just pain of, of not having someone that you can really share your struggles, your spiritual struggles, your ups and downs. And yes, even lead you or physically carry you to Jesus when you are going through something so difficult that you cannot or will not go yourself. I know that a lot of us have had times like that where we are just done. We are in such a bad place, we don't have the strength or desire to go to God. We're just in a really bad funk. Whether it's because I messed up, whether it's because I did some unforgivable sin, whether it's because I'm pissed off at God, uh, because he didn't come through for me, you know, just there's something and, and I just don't want to go to him or I'm just so beat down, you know, I'm so whatever that I don't have the strength to go to him. There are going to be times in life when we do that. In fact, um, I think I told you this story before. I've been here like over 12 years now, so some of my stories, you know, get repeated. But I remember in college, um, I was dating someone, this guy, and uh, he was a Christian, Christian relationship and um, was dating him for quite a while. And there was a time, I don't know if it was during finals or what, during college, uh, UMCP, but I was just not in a good place with God. I wasn't doing my quiet times. I didn't feel like praying. I was angry at God. I can't even remember now what it was, but I was just really angry with God. I was just not, yeah. And of course, that is manifesting itself in my relationship with the guy as well. I'm just angry. I'm not in a good place, a loving place, and he knows I'm upset with God, right? And so he's, finally he got fed up. He's had enough. He locked me in a closet. He put me in a closet, and I mean, he didn't physically, like literally lock the door, but he, he led me, he put me in the closet, closed the door, and he goes, you're not coming out until you get right with God. I was like, what? I'm like, let me out, you are crazy, you know, and let me out, let me out, right? And he's like, I'm not letting you out until you get right with God. No, no, you need to have it out with God. You're not coming out until you have it out with God. And so he really was serious. He was not going to let me out. He, you know, had his, I guess, his back to the door or whatever, and he wasn't letting me out. And so I remember I just crumbling to the ground. It's, it's a small closet. It's dark in there. Um, and I just crumbling to the ground and just weeping, just weeping. You know, the ugly crying, snot, tears, everything. Just made a puddle in, in you know, the closet. But crying and just, I am so spent. I am so tired. I cannot. I don't even have the strength. I don't even know what to say to you, God. I'm so mad at you, you know, and all that. And it... It was because of that intervention of a good friend, boyfriend at the time, but that intervention where he said, you are going to get right with God, and forced me, literally physically locking me in the closet, and you're not coming out until you have it out with God. But I needed that. That's the kind of friend, and that's the kind of person that I had in my life. And after a while, I don't know how long I was in there. I probably got hungry and wanted to come out, um, but I was like, 
I'm all good now. <laughs> you know, let me out. <laughs> and so, you know, he let me out. You know, he let me out. And, you know, I was like, thank you. Of course, I was angry at him. You know, don't ever do that again. You know, I was angry with him in the beginning, but I was really grateful. I was grateful that he took that risk, risked my wrath, you know, the wrath of a girlfriend. To, he risked my wrath to even saying, there's something even more important at stake than our relationship, and that is you and God. This is not right. You need to do something and get right with God about it. So, do you have that type of friend where they will lead you or even physically carry you into God's presence when you can't or won't do it yourself? I started off today talking about friendship being the highest honor that you can receive from someone else, the highest, the best gift that you can give to another person. On the eve of his crucifixion, when Jesus knew, you know, he had Calvary before him and he was going to be crucified, what did Jesus do? He met with his disciples. He met with his disciples and he bestowed upon his disciples, he bestowed upon them the highest honor, the highest honor. If you open to John chapter 15, this is the highest honor that anyone could ever receive. John chapter 15, verses 9 through 15. Jesus says this to his disciples. He says, As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Now remain in my love. If you keep my commands, you will remain in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commands and remain in his love. I have told you this so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. My command is this, love each other as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, to lay down one's life for one's friends. You are my friends if you do what I command. I no longer call you servants because a servant does not know his master's business. Instead, I have called you friends. For everything that I learned from my Father, I have made known to you. This honor is also ours today. Everything that has been known to him, he makes known to us. He has called us friends. No longer are we servants. We are his friends. The highest honor for Jesus, the Son of God, God himself, to call us friends. That is the highest honor, and no greater honor and love is this, that you lay down your life for a friend. Like I said, my friend, willing to bear and carry nine months, pregnancy ain't fun, you know, but nine months to be able to, so that I could have children, to, to have someone, you know, that kind of sacrificial love. Jesus calls us friends, and when he does, he wants us to respond and be his friend. As you know, you cannot force someone to be your friend. You see kids on the playground, mothers, fathers, you know this. Your kids are sad, they come home crying because maybe at the playground they were not included. You know what I'm talking about, right? Or they really want to be so-and-so's friend, but that person is not friendly towards them and, you know, and has their own circle of friends and doesn't include them. There's nothing more hurtful than that. You know, it really hurts. When I see that in my own kids when they were younger and growing up, when I see other kids not including my girls or not wanting to be friends with my girls and my girls are like, you know, I want to be your friend and, you know, they get rebuffed. It, oh, parents, you know this, right? You cannot force anyone to be your friend. You can only extend a hand of friendship to another person. 
It's up to them to clasp that extended hand and be friends. You cannot force friendship on anyone. In the same way, Jesus does not force us to be his friends. Jesus extends his friendship to us. No greater love is there than giving your life for a friend. He calls us friends, and he has proven it. He has given his life for us, friends. Jesus defines the ultimate test of friendship in verse 13, as we read. Yes, in verse 13, greater love has no one than this, that he lays down his life for his friends. Romans 5, 8 says, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. The greatest gift of friendship there. He laid down his life for us. He now calls us friend. So friendship indeed is the greatest honor that we can receive. God himself came down incarnate to be human form, to be our friend, to extend a physical hand of friendship to us. We've been so blessed We have many wonderful friendships, but Jesus Christ should be our closest and dearest friend of all. When all other friends have deserted you, when all other friends have disappointed you, know that there is one who will stick closer even than a friend, the ultimate friend. Because again, we have seen proof of it. He has laid down his life for us. He has called us friends. Can I have the praise team come up? And let me just pray. Gracious God, we thank you that you give us this word today. You call us friends. No longer are we servants, not knowing the master's business. But Lord, you call us friends and we, you welcome us and embrace us into that place and into that relationship that we may be brothers and sisters with Jesus. And we call out Abba Father, our Heavenly Father. Lord, you did not... God, keep even your son, your only son, from us, but gave him sacrificially, God. And so we thank you for this greatest gift of, of all, and that is the gift of life itself. Father, as we look around ourselves and we examine our friendships this moment, Father, we think about our Christian friends, our non-Christian friends. We think of friends that we've lost over the years. We think of friends that right now we're, having, uh, we're struggling with. Father, would you give us discerning eyes, give us wisdom and discernment to see our friends and our relationships through your eyes. Help us to be a friend that will stand, God, when our friends, when their faith may be weak or when they're struggling. Help us to be the friend, God, to strengthen them and to encourage them and to support them. And Father, my prayer is that we also would surround ourselves with such friends who would lead us even closer to you, lead us and take us into your presence once again, God. Father, we thank you for your goodness. Thank you for calling us friends. In Jesus' name, amen.